Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Software Crafts Podcast. My name is João, and today with us I have Heidi Elfen. Heidi is the author of the book Dynamic Reteaming and Vice President of Engineering at Kim Insurance. Hi Heidi, and thanks for your time to be with us today. Hi João, so nice to be here. Thanks. So, moving to the heuristic, um, the heuristic is Think Aptitude and attitude. What is your experience uh, with this heuristic? With aptitude and attitude. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, in general, um, aptitude, the ability, having the skills to do something, attitude, the way that you approach it, how you behave, how you exert your uh, sentiment towards what you're doing. Yeah. So, well, your book, it's around this, or, or not explicitly, but your book, it's about dynamic reteaming, the, the, the nature of uh, and the patterns that you distill based on your practice to form mm -hmm. the teams. So I think that this heuristic, it's also related to that, thinking what skills a team might need and uh, what are the, the, the attitude of people, what is the, the, the methods or techniques that people might use or not use uh, based on that type of work. Um, when you did your work uh, or when you distilled the, the, the patterns, did this pop up a lot or, or um, was always uh, under the water? say? I think um, a bit more under the water. You know, it's interesting because uh, I think at, at different places, the composition of the team has different roles. And these might vary according to what company you're in. And each of the roles connects to an aptitude or, or some skills or, or, or ability. For example, You have, for example, software engineers, quality engineers, product managers, user experience designers. Um, and you might have variants within those groups that have to do with level, uh, associate, senior, principal, for example. Um, some people might be in a special role that have or have an add-on role, like they're a software engineer, but they're also functioning as a tech lead in a team and there's no real carbon copy across all companies for how this is done. I think it, your, your mileage may vary in that case. I think a lot of the times, uh, you know, teams are together to achieve shared goals and the people that are engaged in those shared goals typically come from a variety of perspectives and differences. And I, I think that, is very helpful. Um, so I think these are, these are some of the variables in dynamic reteaming and in just the way that we organize in software companies. So we might find uh, things in common across companies and, and differences as well. Definitely, definitely. And um I think that your book is and dynamic reteaming is self-explanatory, and I would like to pick your brain on what I call the the 
faced before, right? What are the practices or techniques that you can did you use in the past to define the boundaries of the teams, to define the aptitudes and the attitudes that a team might need before moving to to reteaming? Yeah. So I think in many cases, you join a system, you join a company, and there's most likely teams established already. And so you're already, you're like, you're joining a story that has already been playing out. And so you can maybe influence that. Other cases in my career, I've been a part of the first team. I've joined, uh, I guess it's my fourth startup now smaller company growing into a larger company. Well, maybe third. One of them I joined at 800 and it's they already had their product market fit, not really considered a startup anymore. But if I go back to some of the smaller teams that I started at, the, the team structure kind of evolved from the first team. So for example, one startup I was at, I was the 10th employee and we had one team, that team grew bigger and it split. And there's like, so how did we do that? How did we ensure we had a recipe for who we want, the different skills and roles that we wanted on teams for that one in particular, we would talk about having a four engineer nucleus in the team. And these, these people, you know, and it was, this was 19, this is 2007. This is, 2007, we had four engineers who were more full-stack generalists, and and then we had product manager that emerged at some point in the company. Maybe after we had three teams, our founders were playing the role of product vision and manager, and then product managers kind of emerged. So with, with a startup growing, it's kind of a story that is unfolding, and you see the need for people and, and they're added in. So anyway, that we had a four engineer nucleus, we would pair and switch pairs. We had someone who was in a role like, like an anchor in the pivotal, uh, pivotal sense. We were trained in the early days by Pivotal Labs at this particular startup. Product managers emerged, were helpful for us. Um, in that stage of our journey, and they continued on to help chart out uh, the future. We also had a quality role in that team, and later a user experience kind of emerged a bit later. So, and then we we at that company then like really had the the belief in this four person four engineer nucleus, and then others would form around this nucleus and help really enable and help. Uh, move the team forward. Now, then there's all, so there's like one dimension of like, who are the people who's there? You don't always have the perfect composition of roles on teams. Sometimes depending on the urgency and speed that we were going for. And it's at, and I've seen this at multiple companies, you might see the team with a couple of engineers, let's say that are more entrepreneurial in nature. They are not, the people who are waiting for something to tell them what to do, but they are uh, team members who have kind of an entrepreneurial um, interest and they're able to drive work forward. And then a team kind of forms around them. Not everybody can do that. Or anytime you see the team that's apart from the norm in your company, I think 
it takes extra attention, care and feeding, um, but it, it, it can be done. Uh, but again, I think you really need to look for people with an entrepreneurial angle. And there's a book called Managing Corporate Life Cycles by Itzhak Adizis from the Adizis Institute. It's, it's on my bookshelf here. And um, he talks about as you're, he talks about different phases of company growth. It's a very fascinating book. We were students of that book at this particular company. And they talk about different capabilities or interests of people being entrepreneurial, or some people have that interest. People maybe having more of an administrative interest. And there are others, something more kind of people-oriented. He has an acronym P-A-E-I, and, and he goes into detail about that, and that at different phases of the company, maybe you introduce some of these different, like if you're at a company that is not a startup anymore, you're, you've found your product market fit, you're scaling up processes and procedures and systems need to come into place to manage the influx of all of the people. You, you, you tend to see that the people that get attracted to that and might want to be in an environment like that have an interest in coming up with systems processes and, and really like that company building. It does, it's not to say that you don't need people with an entrepreneurial interest because you do as well, but you might just find more people that are attracted to a company at that, at that stage of their development, if they have an administrative uh, you know, and, and that word administrative could be triggering to some people because it doesn't mean like, oh, you know, it, it, there's extremes, right? Uh, I don't mean that, but I think there's a tendency in a company building phase to have people that really like to help solidify the car that you're driving because you're you're moving fast and you're delivering value to your customers. You're adding people, but you're also really kind of building the car as you drive it. Um, which is so that's been my sweet spot. Yeah, which is extremely interesting, right? Because the the, the body of knowledge where the heuristic comes from also explains the same in different words, right? So Simon Wardley also studied the diffusion curves of products and life cycles of uh, a product, and uh, uh, when he, he explains that the product evolves, right? Something is novel and will become a commodity. Right, the, the, the first toaster, you know, electricity. One hundred years ago, people look at that well. Let his wizard, it's magic, right? Today, we just expect to go somewhere and just plug a socket and have electricity. And he also described, and I cannot recall his inspiration, but he also re uh, uh, explains the the attitude based on where the component is. Right. If it is novel, yes, you need um, people that have these entrepreneurial minds, uh, uh, mindset, right? But if you are on the commodity space where everything is highly industrialized, you need what is so-called town planners, right? So people that think mm -hmm. big mm -hmm. and it's about no deviation and all of these type of things, which is exactly what you are explaining, right? To, to, to look to your context and understand what, what do you need. Ah, and then it, it's kind of like we 
we look for people, we, we recruit people, we interview people, but I, I think it's, it's not, it, it, it's not exactly, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's fascinating to think about because there's so much more to it, right? Um, you know, we want to build a community of people that are working together that feel like they can bring the best of themselves and they they're engaged in what they do and they work together and they're different from each other. They have differences and, and it's a welcoming environment. And we have this community that we're building together of people. And, you know, how do we make sure that, um, that people always have a fit in, in not in the sense of culture fit, but people have that work that they find is really attractive to them and that they are really passionate about. That's the kind of fit that we want for the person. We want to help the person find and be able to renew themselves as they work at our companies, right? And so maybe they'll join and they would start out working on this team and they would do that for a while, but then maybe an interest develops and they hear, Oh, there's something going on over here that I find fascinating. And I was talking with someone and I would really like to work over here. And in essence, with an aspect of dynamic reteaming is helping the individuals find that place in an ongoing basis so they can feel renewed. And also like, I really, um, people grow and develop and change. It could be that maybe I have an interest in uh, catalyzing something new, but after a while, maybe I want a completely different dynamic for myself. And I want something uh, a bit less entrepreneurial and focused that I want to work on um, the incident learning loop and, and hear that feedback from the system that we hear about in production and really kind of like, work on a large scale quality view of, of our system and, and drive some improvements in that way. And so I think as leaders, it's really important to cultivate a learning environment where people can develop as themselves, not get, you know, put in a category that they can't get out from. Like it, it's the care and feeding of, of the people as they grow and develop. And I'm also really, really big on potential and giving people opportunities to try different things. I don't, I don't know about your experience, but sometimes if someone views me as one way, is that going to limit my, my contribution? Like, like how can we create opportunities in our company where, where people can experiment and learn different things and work with different people? I think the heart of a lot of the things that I write about is, is about that. And and, and giving people a chance to, to try and be supported. And it really means a lot to me uh, to, to help people find that, that thing that, you know, we're, we're working with people. It's a lot of hours a day and how can we really, um, you know, we got to pay attention to people. We got to understand what their learning paths are and what they want them to be and, and really uh, try to be there for the person. You know, at the same time, we have needs as a business. So when you find that match between what we really need for the business and what the person wants, kind of that sweet spot in between, you know, that's what we're ultimately going for. And so, you know, I believe we can, uh, we can get to that. We just need to be flexible about 
how we approach things. So I agree with you. I, I think that um, we are with uh, the on same field because I I deeply believe that what we do in the industry of software is different, right? Because software has an interesting property that once it is in production, it's really easy to change it, right? Where before software, the glass that you are holding, it's in production, it's really hard to, to change it. Well, you can crack it down and start over again, but it's a very expensive process. With software, it's it's way cheaper to change something that is in production, which means that we are learning from all the knowledge that we have as uh, um, humans how to do that because it's it's pretty new. And what you bring or, or what you write about is also putting the human at, in the center. That is a thing that with computers, we tend to forget. We just push on efficiency, right? Uh, because computers are fast, we just think that we, people, can be as fast and as efficient. We can't, right? We can't. We need to find this match. And also you trigger me because you talk about, especially your sweet spot, that is this uh, startup scale-up phase. You talk about in your initial story about finding the product manager's role that emerge. So what is your advice for managers and, and senior managers to deal with the phenomena of emergence, you know, the, the things that just emerge and has potential? Uh, what do you advise there? Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that we that we do in general is about solving problems or challenges that we face, and we do it together and we talk about it. And I, I, I think that's like the nature of a lot of the work. We time passes. We're we're doing something today. We have a challenge, and we want to engage people in problem solving. I mean, that's like how we develop things, right? Like, like what we don't want is, you know, it's like the, the turn that ship around book by uh, David Marquet, L. David Marquet, David Marquet, where he talks about setting an intent and enabling people to problem solve and find what needs to be done instead of telling people exactly what needs to be done. I mean, I take a look and I see, wow, look at all these people. And we're all together in this community to make a difference and to build software to delight our customers. You know, in this case, you know, for my company, we make homeowners insurance for people in disaster prone regions. Like it's a very important product that we offer where people can, you know, feel safe in their homes and insure their homes. And so we have this shared kind of mission, you know, and along the way, a variety of different things come up. And so if we could all get into that space of solving problems together, I think we'll come up with more options and have better solutions than just a few dictating some solutions. And I think the different problems emerge across time. So getting back to the emergence question, right? So things develop and they change across time. Something new comes in, we get new information, new people, new challenge, state of the world, you know, things are gonna happen. Sometimes we wanna catalyze these changes and make them happen. Other times we're gonna be surprised, right? COVID, like nobody saw that coming. We had to adjust and adapt and new things came from that. For me, one of the emergent things, you know, in the world of work in COVID is, 
you know, greater care, you know, just witnessing the previous company has that witnessing, you know, the focus and, and greater care for people and being flexible with, um, you know, you need to take care of yourself and your family and, and put health first and its value and like different language emerged from that, you know, with teams, like one of the things that I'm really passionate about, you know, you get these I've witnessed this kind of change at multiple companies where you have one team owning one tool, one team owning one tool, one team owning one tool, and then they have backlogs of work that go with that. And then after a while, someone's like, huh, I wonder if it's really more important for the company to have three teams working on that one tool. And people start, you know, well, we have to be, are we working on the most important thing? So sometimes you'll see teams merge because of that merging pattern. One of the things in my book. And then if you, if you, if you strategically have these larger communities together and you enable the people in these teams, let's say there's 20 engineers plus other roles together in a community, they have a shared kind of backlog of work that's prioritized. You know, there's kind of higher priority is being paid attention to as opposed to the, the tighter coupling of tool and backlog and team, right? So you have these communities and then it's a problem for them to solve how they organize to meet the work that is in their condensed list. So you almost have these smaller startups really within the, the larger organization. And, and that's one that that I, one kind of pat, like other kind of pattern that I really like in that it encourages the teams to own their structure. And the heart of dynamic reteaming is about all of that, engaging people in conversations so they solve problems together, not just about what we're building for the customer and what we're doing there, which is very important, but it's also in how are we going to build the car that we're driving while we're, we're, we're getting to our destination. And when the people have the, the ability to own that themselves, I think it, it can be really powerful and no leader can necessarily give uh, the exact answer of what's best for those people. So I like to allow for variation and I like for the people to own their composition and, and it, you know, ownership is, is, is a really important thing. And we hire people that, are brilliant and they solve all kinds of problems. So why, why can't they have a say into how they're organized? Definitely. Right. Uh, we also create software for very complex problems. Uh, and this is actually a paradox that you are pointing out. We hire people to solve very complex problems and then we try to detail uh, upon the task that people, these people needs to, to execute. Right. And you described yeah. the, and it's not perfect all the time, right? Like this is hard, right? It, it's it's it, it's hard to do this. And um, you know, from my vantage point, sometimes there are changes that need to happen, and they're they're out of the scope of the team. And and so then it's like, all right, how are you going to be in that? How are you going to be in that as a leader? If if you have to introduce a change and it didn't originate in the team or the communities of teams, how are you going to go about that? Like that is a very big and important area to get better at as a leader. It's not always our choice. Like it's not that it's speaking as, you know, from a team, team member vantage point, some things are going to happen. And, and like in my past, right. What first startup I was at, 
we were building go to go to meeting go to webinar um we as part of that startup i was a 15th team member we had these it was dot com times i joined in 99 very exhilarating uh experience i was a web editor and then interaction designer and and then some other roles um but you know the first product wasn't uh succeeding we had hopes and dreams for this product but we had to, the company had to pivot we made started making the go-to products which saved the company but it wasn't the team's decision and we reteamed using what i call the isolation pattern to put a startup in the startup to create a new product without disruption from the way it's always been done in the other teams we had this freedom to do something different i was able to be part of that team but we had i cried when we <laughs> couldn't work on that first product anymore cuz you know, as my, from my kind of UX vantage point, the interactions we wanted to develop in that first product to be told that it was canceled was like horrible for me until I realized that, wait a minute, it wasn't making any money. This company wasn't going to survive unless we changed. Um, so sometimes we get, my point is, you know, we want to enable agency where people can make decisions. And I love when they can do it about team composition, but you know, sometimes things happen. That company got acquired later as well, which we didn't want, <laughs> like we had a different kind of uh, exit dream for that. Many of us wanted it to go public and, and it was that dot-com thing, but you know, we got, we, we got acquired, which actually was fine um, for, 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 for me in the end. And they kept us as a separate division and we, we were able to focus and create uh, like go to meeting and go to webinar. So, and thanks for sharing this. Right, we, uh, I think that these stories, the audience can relate to these because somehow uh, we have similar stories here and there with uh, the companies that we work with. And you were talking about uh, an interesting topic that I'm passionate about. That is the, the concept of agency. Right, we uh, talk a lot about autonomy. Uh, we don't talk a lot enough about alignment, but then also we have agency, right? How we come together uh, to deliver uh, a promise or to deliver something uh, to our company or even to the outside, to, to, to the outside, to the environment, right? To other companies and people and customers, right? Mm -hmm. I don't feel that companies, uh, this is a personal feeling. I don't feel that companies or, or leaders in the companies think about that. They keep thinking about the task, not the work, right? Not to enable agency. Do you feel the same? Uh, or do you feel that things around you are changing? Well, I think we all see different things. And from the vantage point of where we sit in an organization, we see different things. And... I have a lot of empathy for my leaders in the past. Now that I'm in a VP role, I see things differently than I saw in a coach role or in my UX role or whatever role I was in in the past. I think we all see, uh, we have different perspectives on what's going on. And communities are different. Companies are different. In the absence of information, we make things up, right? Brene Brown, uh, Dare to Lead, her book talks about that. We're exposed to different 
parts of the business and we see things differently. And I, you know, it, you know, maybe it gets to, you know, what are the, what are kind of like the interests, values, philosophies of the leaders you have and what kind of tone do they set and what kind of communication are they able to get across to the group? I mean, it could be in one of the companies that you were maybe thinking about the intent, the intent of the leader was the opposite of how it was playing out or maybe not. Um, you know, I, I really think, um, and especially when we hire in leaders to our companies, let's say you're looking for, for someone for a role, I, I think, you know, really trying to, to understand uh, the philosophy, their philosophy is really important. I think diff- different leaders set tones, right? And, but there's also the challenge of, okay, a leader can come in with a philosophy, but can they get the points across? in these large systems that as they get bigger and bigger, it's hard to get, you think you're clear because you say something twice, but really the message didn't get across. Right. Um, So I think there's something about the communication architecture that you set up in your organization. Like these are some of the things that I think of day to day. All right, here we are right now. And we have all these people coming in. We're in a growth phase, right? And you have to evolve and adapt your communication architecture so you could try to to, um, enable multiple communication ways, right? It's not just, I am going to cascade some information to everyone. No, it's about getting the information flowing in multiple directions. We have frames of reference that you know, we know about like, these are, these are some of the evolving problems that are are very real to me that, you know, so it's kind of like, all right, how can we co-create this communication architecture and system together so that people have what they need, people are getting their points across and, and all of that. And then messages, you know, getting, getting, like it is my intent that people are able to make decisions and that they make decisions in their communities and teams and that they feel like they can do that because they, you know, it, it's, um, it's a fascinating problem uh, just to, you might have the intent, you want things, but can you get the point across and how do you do that? And that involves in really a lot of deliberate planned communication. And especially if your organization is invisible i.e. it's a remote first organization, there's another, well, depends on how you view it. Some might view that as an obstacle. Some might view that as easier. I prefer having, I can hear people and see people better than when I was in a hybrid situation with 10 people in a conference room and three people, you know, me being one of them elsewhere. Right. Um, You know, the, 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 you know, the, Things are always changing. It's very dynamic, especially as if you have a highly movable company that's growing or if it's shrinking, which we saw a lot of in 2020, 2021, and still do. Um, which can happen, right? I have a similar experience in the past, shrinking and pivot. So also was focused in one product rather than multiple products, and that play out pretty well. But also you talk about well, what everyone experienced in the, the past two years, right? A pandemic that totally changed our way of life. 
for good or the bad. Um, and you talk about communication and being intentional. One of the things that I observe more and more is that companies have a, a problem to adapt to this new situation when they are not well versed in written communication, right? Mm. When companies are used to, okay, just let's grab something to eat. Let's have the coffee shed, which are very effective, right? Because we see eye to eye and we tell an anecdote and how things are going with the families and what is your favorite sport, so on and so forth. And then companies that we lost these. Uh, and I saw that companies that could adapt to the written form of communication could uh, move faster than other companies. And I saw that as a big different uh, different point. And uh, the company that I work with, we start this discussion as well. What can we improve in the written uh, language or in the written form, not only because uh, it's remote first, but also we are growing. Between 20 people, that was easy to, to get the message across. Uh, just with our unit, we want to go to 50 or 70, right? So which way more communication lights, right? goes exponentially to the managers. So I observed this, which was very interesting because if we look to companies like GitLab, they, they always had uh, the written communication as the first thing, right? Everyone needs to know Git and Markdown, as they said, to work at GitLab, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I see that too. It's like a key part of that communication architecture that you have that structure and um, like even bringing in support for uh, getting better at writing. I mean, we did that at my company. Uh, written communication is, is very important and being, you know, try to, trying to be succinct and, and direct is, is important, you know, but there's a lot of reading too. There's a lot of reading and there's a lot of writing and uh, there's a lot of, where's the document? I can't find it. There's, there's challenges like that as well. But I think, uh, I think, you know, I agree with you. I, the, the written communication is like something to hold on to. It's like something to, that we can share and, and get past and, and we can talk about it too. Like we can have a meeting and somebody writes something, maybe we all comment on it, whatever. And then we come and, you know, we can get, maybe we can get deeper than the need to make a perfect polished slide deck which, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's easier to write something out and, and even workshop with people. Uh, I, I think that's really useful and helpful and gives us something, it's like a scaffold or something that helps us. Exactly, to, to validate the mental models, right? So I'm, I'm a, a practitioner of visual collaboration, right? So sometimes we are talking about the same, we think that we assume that we are talking about the same concept, but just laying that down will show the differences on our mental models. And I also think if we try to write our mental models, how things work, just not only, only with text, but uh, with other visual forms, then we can have this deep conversation that you are talking about, right? Putting notes or I don't think that the process works like that, or I don't think that these right and then we yeah. align our mental models yeah and like 
in this in the space of like reteaming or when a group is going to change, whether they initiate it themselves or you know something something else happens, having that written down and communicated in that way and iterated upon and frequently asked questions are are really really helpful for all of this. There's a, a, a HR leader named Pat Waters at my previous company Procore that instituted a uh, decision-making framework she calls RIDE. And this is something that she created and I was encouraging her to please write about this, <laughs> at least write about this and like talk about it. Um, but it's like somebody, so you can have, let's say you're proposing something. Like I had someone, we did a code retreat on an off cycle. One of the principal engineers wanted to do a code retreat. I'm okay, like, let's write a proposal. You can have a RIDE at the top of it. So R is requester or who's recommended, recommender, recommender. I is input. Who's going to give input. D is decider. One person is going to be the decider and E is execute or carry it out. So R I D E and having even clarity with some things with an acronym like that. And, and, you know, it could be a very wide audience is giving input, which is totally fine. But I find that being clear on decision-making for different things is, is really key. And that's, that's something that helps. Definitely. And uh, I really like, really like these decision-making frameworks because I also often see that mm-hmm. when this is not clear, everyone in a organization think that they can decide about everything. And just to really be explicit about this, we can even have the discussion why person X doing input and the other person deciding, which can have this conversation, but also makes the scope and also can help people to focus, right? Okay, yeah. if I just need to give input, I just give need to give input and then someone will decide, make out for the group, right? Mm-hmm. I really like... Focus. I think that 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 is the the, the worth. Yeah, I, I think it's helpful too. You can also pull for agreement. There's something in my book also about this fist of five, uh, which uh, you know it, people might seem like they agree on something, but then if you pull for agreement, you might see that they're on different pages. Like like somebody proposes something. All right, you give it a five. And, if you wildly support it four, yes, I support it. It can go forward three. Oh, I don't really care. I'll just go with the group Two, I have serious concerns. We have to address X, Y, and Z before I can agree to this. And one, I totally don't agree. But if you're, if you're having a meeting and you're talking about a decision and suddenly, and you pull for consensus or pull for agreement or degrees of agreement, agreement, if you find that everybody was just like, eh, it's okay, I give it a three, you might not want to do that thing. It's different from voting because then you can vote whether you want to do it or not. But um, there's there's a lot of very helpful techniques to uh, converge together as, as a team. Um, you know. Definitely, definitely. So the, the I'm passionate about also sense-making and the, 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 what you wrote in your book. I also classify in one of these techniques to, to really feel where the group is. Mm-hmm. That can mm-hmm. help move forward yeah. or not, or, or once again challenge the mental models. I have one last question because we are uh, running almost out of time. That time just flies. I'm really enjoying conversation. And my last question is: What are the resources that you recommend to our audience? Books, podcasts, blogs, uh, 
YouTube videos, any type of material? Yeah. So as we, as we, as time passes, we face different challenges, right? And a lot of the times that's what I do to find my next book to read, right? Like if I'm um, like, what do I, what do I have right now? I, um, I think it was like nine months ago, I entered this role as uh, VP of engineering. Uh, and I read the book, the first 90 days, I happen to have it right here. Cause I was, there was someone on my team that is becoming a manager for the first time. We were talking about writing out um, your goals and like plans. And this book is helpful for that. The first 90 days, there's another great book that I read when I started this role, which was by David Marquet also called leadership is language. Uh, uh, a, co a colleague, Courtney Kistler, who gave me advice as a first-time VP, suggested that I read this book. And it's about um, approaching, you know, listening and asking questions, a lot of coaching skills, um, but encouraging people to solve problems themselves, as opposed to as a leader telling everybody what the solution is or what the answer is, which is what we don't want to do. Um, but, you know, sometimes you need, you need to. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, Leadership is Language is another great book. And I'll give one more. The Leader Lab is another wonderful book for how do I give feedback to someone, um, uh, different management techniques, the leader, the leader Lab. And that's another one that I have. So, yeah, I think I, I love uh, turning to books to help solve challenges or to get ideas for what I'm facing. And so that's, that's usually what I do. And so. Thanks for sharing. I will make sure that uh, those books are on the, the description of the episode so that the audience can uh, pick them and uh, yeah. share what they think about them uh, with you. I also will make sure that uh, the, your social media is there so people can contact you directly. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, um, Yes, so uh, thanks. Thanks for your time uh, this, uh, to be uh, with us in this episode. Uh, and I wish you a rest of a great day. Thanks, Joao. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks again. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast. Visit our webpage, softwarecraftspodcast.com. Visit our page on LinkedIn. Hope to get you next week. Thank you.